Lord, we ask you to be with us as we look at your word today. Help us to see what you'd have us to understand from this and just see that all the promises that you've given us and the down payment to what you've given us. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be starting in 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at the escrow for inheritance. And the first question I'm going to say is, what is escrow? Everybody. Money put aside for something. It's uh, checking the title and making sure the title's straight. And all the that is what's done during escrow of a building. Titles. Escrow is a third party that handles all the transactions to make sure that they're completed. And usually they're only used for really high ticket items like houses where somebody's going to be putting down thirty, forty thousand dollars and they want to make sure that they get a clear title and and proper paperwork and everything signed off. So you give it to a third party and then the third party gets all the documents and and make sure that it happens. So it's it's a third party that handles all of the requirements for something to happen. Okay, so we're gonna be looking a little bit at this uh, escrow to our inheritance. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to the inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved for in heaven for you. Okay, so verse 4 really describes what it is that it is being being purchased and that is the inheritance that's incorruptible it does not rust it does not waste away does not mold or mildew or or get destroyed it's undefiled it's unchanged and it fades not away and it's reserved in heaven so let's look at verse 3 pretty much as to what is it that got that we're given in place of this and it says blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ I want to just consider for a moment Lord have you ever thought about what Lord means? We use it a lot, don't we? Jesus is our Lord. He's our, our Lord. But what does it mean that he is Lord? He's the highest. The Royalty. Highest. Royalty. Royalty, yeah. Okay. Uh, Lord literally means the person to whom a person or thing belongs and about which he has power of deciding over. Okay. So when we say that Jesus is our Lord, we're saying we belong to him and that he can use us any way he wants. Now, we usually don't mean that when we call him our Lord a lot of times. Uh, We we like the idea that we belong to him, maybe. (laughs) But that second part, that he has the power to use us the way he wants wants to, that bothers people a lot. You know, it, it kind of look, people look at that and go, well, I don't know. I liked that part. That means when he allows bad things to happen or what we consider bad things to happen, that's him doing what he wants because we belong to him. When we die and go to heaven, that's him doing what he wants with us. So I just wanted to bring that out because Lord is something we don't often think about or consider. So we want to be able to look at that. At, you know, the idea of him being Lord. Okay, so it says, Blessed be our Lord, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us into a lively hope, a living hope, of by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
a lively hope, a live, living hope. And we've talked about hope. What is hope in the scriptures? It's not I wish for or I, I you know, that's how we use it in English usually. I wish for something, I hope for something to happen. But that's not what is, remember what biblical hope is. Confident assurance of something. Okay, my, my hope is in nothing less than Jesus and his righteousness. It's not a I wish for, but I am confidently assured that I can be sure that he's going to make this happen. And it's very important we understand that because it, when we read hope as an English reader, we look at it and say, wow, well, you know, that's not very good. You know, I'm wishing for, I'm, you, know, I'm, I'm, you know, and that's not what it is. It's confident assurance. And it says, by his abundant mercy. God's mercy, abundant, overflowing. His, his mercy overflows. His, his mercy has no end. Okay? And it's because of what Jesus did. And it says he's begotten us. He made us children. He's made us new. And all because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is the first of the resurrection. He's the, the first fruit of resurrection that we've talked about at various times. And he is the promise. Because he was resurrected, we know that he can resurrect us when we die. And this is an important aspect for us to understand it. And this whole idea that he has reserved heaven, reserved in heaven, he guards, he watches carefully, he, he's going to monitor. You know, very important for us to keep in there. And the escrow in this case is his abundant mercy and his new life that he's given us. So it's two parts. Mercy and life. And I love the fact that he gives us life. You know, when somebody gets saved and you see that light come on in their face and the, and the, and the expression of life in their, over their body, it's wonderful to watch. It's really wonderful to watch all of that happen for them and, and see. And I don't know if you've led somebody to the Lord and seen that, but it's been my pleasure at times just to see life come flying in, you know, coming upon them. And, you know, and also I've seen them just, you know, stand straighter. The weight of the world's off of them. They've lost that weight of sin. And many people you see are being beat up by the world, being beat up by sin. And before they know Christ, I've seen people just slouched over, you know, and, and, and miserable. And then they get saved and all of a sudden the weight's lifted off. The, the light is in their eyes. You know, they say that the eyes are the, the, the windows to the soul, and you can see that when somebody gets saved, you see that light come into their being. And it's, it's a great thing to see. All right, Colossians chapter 1. All right, Colossians 1, chapter uh, verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us met for to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. So he has, he has made us partakers, and it met. He's made us, that word means made sufficient. He's rendered us fit. He's given, equipped us with the power to perform. And these are great words on this. And this, this is one of those places where the word in English just doesn't make the power on us. He, you know, giving thanks unto the Father, which has given us the power to perform and to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. God has given us power. And this is important for us to understand, and because we talk about it all the time. It's not me who has the power to live like a Christian. 
Because I'm going to fall flat on my face. Every single time, I'll fall flat on my face. And it will be that way every time because the flesh gets involved. And even if I can discipline the flesh, it will still end up falling eventually. Quiet down. But God gives the power for us to be able to do what he wants us to do. Because it's him living in us. He puts the Holy Spirit in us. Jesus lives in us. And we have the power of that, in that, because of that, to be able to live, to be partakers of the inheritance. And, allows us to live. and he's, he's the one that gives us the power to, to perform. He makes us sufficient to receive, to be partakers in the inheritance. And this is what we've been talking about all this long. Jesus comes in. We are declared perfect. Even though we're not, Jesus, we're clothed in Jesus Christ's righteousness. So when God looks at us, he sees perfection, even though we're not. And we know that we're not. And yet he says, you are sufficient. You are made able to do this. You know, and that's why I, I love being a Christian. Because I've said this over and over. Every other religion out there is all based on doing something. And it doesn't matter which one, whether it's many of the Middle Eastern ones where you keep getting, you know, uh, reincarnated until somehow you manage to get it right, or any of the ones around the Asian area where it's all based on do more good than bad, but even re reincarnation is based on doing more good than bad. You just keep, you just get lots of chances to do it under their, their thought pattern. Or in the, in, uh, any other one, it's doing more good than bad, and somehow you're going to please God. And unfortunately, too many Christians also believe that it is do more good than bad, you know, to please God. And they don't understand Scripture. It's all by His mercy and His grace that we can come before Him. It's all by His mercy and grace that we get to go to heaven. Because Jesus did it all. He said on the cross, it is finished, which literally means it's paid for. It is completed. And the whole thing was the law was finished. Jesus completed it. He, his perfection was finished. The payment for sin was finished. And right now, the only thing that stands between us and, and heaven or hell is what do we do with Jesus? Do I make him my Lord and my master, my savior, my friend, because I accept what he did on the cross for me, or do I reject it? And if I accept it, he comes in and lives with me, and he gives me the power to live the way he wants me to live. Because he lives through me and crucifies my flesh. And this is what people have to understand. I cannot do, even as a Christian, I can't do anything that's going to make God love me more and say that he cares for me more. Now, he may be pleased when I obey him, just as any parent would be. But no parent is, you know, that is, that is a good parent is going to say, well, you, you were bad, so I don't love you anymore, and you can't come, come, can't come near me. Now, we all know parents that are bad that, you know, think that way. But a good parent isn't going to do that. They're going to discipline the child, and, and, you know, if they're doing their job right, they'll discipline the child for doing wrong, but they'll still love that child wholeheartedly, and they're still a member of the family. They're not going to kick them out of the family, uh, and they're going to love that child. You know, when we watched The Perfect Stranger, the one question was that Jesus asked the girl, and he goes, you know, you know, if Sarah does something bad, you know, 
How many, today, how many times does she have to wash the dishes before she can climb back up your lap and love her and, and get a hug? You know, and of course the woman said, you know, nothing, I love her. You know, and that's how God is with us. Because it's paid for, we don't have to sit there and, and make retribution for what we've done. We don't have to you know, get on the ground and crawl for 30 yards to get God to love us again. He loves us because we are his children. He's paid the price. And he just loves us. We're you know, because we are his children. And he knows that he knows that we're going to make mistakes. That's why he justifies us. He says, You are perfect. And then we spend the rest of the time being sanctified. And what is sanctification? Being made perfect. And it's a long process. Okay. I want to get these words in our heads because they're important. What is justification? He legally declares that we're perfect. Okay. Sanctification is what? Sanctification is that we learn to walk as being perfect. We will spend our entire life being sanctified. And there will be certain areas of our life where we'll get down pretty good, where we don't have to worry about it, and then God will show us other areas in our life that need to be sanctified. And what's glorification? So justification is a legal declaration that we're perfect. Glorification is bringing us up. Glorification is when we, are, when we die or we are raptured and God makes us perfect as he said we were in the beginning. Okay? These are the three parts of salvation that we really want to understand. Justification, God declares us perfect. Sanctification, he works at making us perfect. And glorification, he completes whatever process is still left when we die or are raptured. Okay? Very important to understand these because there are a lot of people who think because of glorification and justification that somehow we're perfect and, and we, will, we, we will not make mistakes. And they forget all the verses in between that talk about sanctification. Or they get into sanctification and, don't, and totally forget that God sees us as perfect and finished and they get wrapped up in all the works of sanctification. Okay, Very important for us to understand each of the three parts and where they fit in. Because when God says that we're perfect, he's talking through justification. When he's talking about us learning to be perfect, he's talking about our day-to-day -day walk with him to be sanctified. And then when we, go to, when we die or go to heaven, you know, or, or rapture, then we will be made who he said we were in the first place. Okay? And I just want to, we're going to keep giving these terms out. I know they're big terms, and that's why I try to simplify them. I want to make sure you understand what they are when they're, when they're being said, because... Justification is our power. Okay, that's our power. God, from his throne in heaven, the, the courtroom of heaven, as the judge says, you are perfect. We know we're not perfect. Satan knows we're not perfect. God even knows that we're not, in reality, perfect, but he declares that we're perfect. It's just like a bankruptcy judge saying, you no longer owe a debt. You know that you owed that debt. The company you owed it to, to knows, that you, knows that you owed that debt, but the court says you no longer owe that debt, and you no longer owe it because they judicially said you don't owe the debt. But when God says that we are perfect, that is the same thing. Even though we do, do and we aren't, he knows that he's declaring us perfect. Why? He sees us in the righteousness of Christ. And then we spend our entire life trying to become who he said we were. And then we will become who he says we are. 
So I'm hoping that, is that making a little more sense? Uh, so, but God makes us sufficient, and that's his part of the escrow. He makes us sufficient. He makes us, gives us the power to live the way he wants. And that's part of the inheritance. Part of the inheritance that we're going to have in heaven where we, are, where we become perfect. All right, we're going to look at Ephesians 1, which is two books to the left. And when you get to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, it's real easy. I was taught when I was a teenager the acronym God's, power, uh, God's Electric and Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Gala uh, Colossians. And because they're very powerful books. All right, looking at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So, what, what have we been blessed with? All spiritual blessings. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Okay? Where are heavenly places? Where Jesus and God are. Very good. Wherever Jesus and God is, is heavenly places. So we, everywhere we are, are technically in a heavenly place because Christ is in us. So wherever we are, we are bringing the kingdom of God, his presence, his power into that situation. And so we look at this. Blessed is God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us, who with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And we're going to jump to verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. God opens our eyes. Okay? The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. God gives us understanding, and he is the one that gives us light. We really cannot know anything from the scriptures without God enlightening. And very much, it's very, we have to understand that. If you've ever talked to somebody who doesn't know Jesus, and you say, you need to read the Bible, or have you read the Bible, what's you, what do you usually hear from them? I don't need to. Or, I don't need to, or even more, I just don't understand anything that's in the Bible. I just don't understand it. It makes no sense. And I've heard that over and over and over again where people say it just doesn't make sense. Then you talk to somebody who gets saved and they start reading the Bible and God has enlightened their eyes. He's opened their understanding. And all of a sudden, this book is not just a bunch of written words anymore. It is God leaping off the pages to you and you understand it. And I don't know if anybody can remember back re trying to read the Bible before they were saved to reading the Bible afterwards. But when God is there, the Holy Spirit is there enlightening the Word, all of a sudden there's life in the Word. There's, there's, there's meaning. Uh, and like I say, I get into God's Word. I, can't, I have a hard time just reading the Word a lot of times because it starts tying together with other places and I want to get facts out from someplace else and, because it, it's alive. And it's so important because there's lots of ways to learn to study the Bible, but the most important tool in studying the Bible is the Holy Spirit. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the Scripture for you. And He will show you things in the Scripture that you've never seen before. 
And I can't tell you, I've told you many, many times as a teenager, I'd go to God and say, God, I don't understand these verses. I've had pastors teach this and pastors teach this and I need to know what the truth is. And God would show me. The Holy Spirit would teach me directly. You know, not with voices, but all of a sudden there'd be understanding. And it would be, oh, okay, that's the truth. And over the years I've learned to study and now I can tell you why what the Holy Spirit taught me was true is true. But the Holy Spirit will teach even the simplest child the truth of the scriptures. And it's wonderful, and I've said it over and over again, and, and people tend not to believe me, but the Holy Spirit will show new Christians great truths in the Bible, and I love to talk to them and hear what God is showing them. Because they see things through the Holy Spirit that I may never have understood or even ever contemplated. But it's not wrong because it, it resonates. It resonates with my spirit. And I say, you know, it doesn't, it's not anti-scripture, it's, it's good. And it's important to be able to have that. And I want to encourage everybody that, that gets into God's word, share with people what God shows you. You know, share with them what's going on, how they're, what you're learning, because it, it's good for you to share. It's good for you to share and, sh and let people know. And it's good for them to hear. You know, it's important for us to, those of us who teach, we get to do it all the time. It's fun. We get to do it all the time. But we I really want to encourage others to share and, and be able to say, this is what I learned. This is, this is what God showed me. Make it personal. Make it understand that God is showing you things. Because God wants to open our understanding. He wants to illuminate. And what does he want to illuminate? The hope of our calling. The hope of our calling. We are called to serve him because he evolved that he's done for us. And has a great expectation that we have for him. He wants to be able to love us. He wants to be able to give us great, great blessing. He wants to give us great honor. And he wants us to understand. You know, he wants us to understand. He doesn't want us to be dumb and, and unintelligent about what we believe. And we're told in Peter, be ready always to give a defense for what you believe. You know, and I talk to many, many Christians and they go, well, I just have faith. Well, I'm glad that they can live with just faith, but that doesn't help answer why you believe. You know, sometimes it comes down to just faith. Okay, I can't absolutely prove that God created the heavens and the earth. No, I can prove that it needed a supernatural being to start everything because life can't start by itself. But I can't necessarily prove that our God is the one that started everything. But we know that life does not spontaneously generate. Okay, that's been proven by science. Okay, it is a law in science that life does not spontaneously generate. Yet everybody who believes in evolution believes that that law is not true. That a scientific law is not true because they believe in evolution that life started from nothing. So they're having trouble. They're violating laws of science to try to put their theory together. Okay? And God is saying, so we can look at the science and say, something supernatural started life. You know, above nature. You know, not necessarily our God. I mean, he fits the best supernatural being out there. But something beyond nature started life. It had to have because life does not, in nature, life does not spontaneously generate. And that's a law. Okay? It was proven. And, but everybody who believes in evolution believes that that law is not a law of science. <laughs> and if that's not a law of science, we should be seeing life spontaneously generate all over the place. So 
but you understand what I'm saying? God is out there. He wants to illuminate us. He wants to give us knowledge. He wants to help us. All right, Hebrews 9. And that's back toward the back of the Bible. That's the Timothys and Thessalonians. Verse 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 15. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For this cause, he is the mediator. God, Jesus Christ, is the mediator. And what is a mediator? Go between. Go between a lawyer. Uh, Jesus is the go-between or the lawyer that stands before God and defends us. Satan goes to the courts of heaven. He accuses us. Jesus stands up and he says a real simple statement. It's under the blood. I paid for it. It's under the blood. And reminds God that it's covered. For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. The new, the new covenant, the new rules. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant. And what were the, what's that mean? The transgressions of the first covenant? Laws. The laws. We sinned against the law. Okay? And his death is the redemption. He bought back, redeemed us, bought us back, that we might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Think about this. We talked about inheritance last week. Everything that God owns, we have a stake in. And God owns everything. And if he doesn't own enough, he just, he just says, a, says a couple words and creates more of it. Yeah. So it's an it's a unlimited, infinite inheritance that we have a portion of. And how? Because of Jesus' death. He died for our sins so that we could be redeemed, bought back from sin, from Satan. Adam and Eve sinned. They gave control of this world over to Satan through that sin. They were the ones that were going to control the world. They had full say. They were the king and queen of the, of the world. They were going to live eternally and have full control. They had dominion over the world. They sinned and gave that to, to Satan to have dominion over this world. Jesus came, paid, paid for the sin, and took back dominion of this world. He will make it final when he comes back at the end of the seven-year tribulation and sets up his kingdom and then at the end of the thousand-year kingdom destroys everything and starts all brand new. And we can't even picture what a brand new world's going to look like without sin. No, no goat heads, no, no choyas, no cacti to stick you, no thorns, no excessive heat, uh, or excessive cold for those who don't like cold. Uh, Mosquitoes or flies. <laughs> well, you might have flies. I don't know about flies, but you won't have mosquitoes biting you and all these other things. And the lion will li live with the lamb, and the asp will, will not be poisonous to you, to us. A perfect world. And we can't, we can't fathom that. It just, none of that makes sense to us. 
Seven years is completion, right? Seven is completion. He's going to rain for seven years. No, no, he's going to rain for a thousand. Oh, okay. He rains after the seven years of tribulation. After the rapture, Jesus takes the Christians from this world, and then God's judgment falls upon this world. And that's the, the seven trumpets, seven vials, and seven bowls of judgment. And his judgments, and you want to remember, his judgments aren't on, aren't on this world because he's mad at them and he's trying to hurt them. His judgment is still discipline. He's trying to get people to come to him. Okay, And remember, that's always the reason for discipline. Discipline is never to hurt somebody or should, nev or should never be. You know, if it's, if its goal is to hurt somebody, it's no longer discipline. It is just meanness. Discipline is designed to bring somebody back into a good relationship with God. And it's very important for us to understand that. When, God, when, we, when we sin and, and God needs to discipline us, it's not that he's mad at us, at us. It's not that he's trying to hurt us. He's saying, you don't want to do this anymore. When, when my kids were growing up and I had to give them spankings or take privileges away or whatever it was that I gave to them at whatever age it was, it wasn't designed to hurt them. It was probably only one time that I was ready to hurt one of my kids, and that was when he gave, you know, was disrespectful to my wife as a, as a middle-aged middle teenager. And I went after him and said, you have the choice here to apologize to your mom or we're going out back and I'll treat you like any other man that disrespects my wife. You know, uh, and that was probably the only time that I had really lost my cool with any of my kids uh, because he was being very disrespectful. Uh, but we want to look at this and say, discipline always should be for the purpose of bringing back fellowship, bringing people back into a proper way of living. And it should be one that keeps them from doing something wrong in the future. Okay, So we want to be able to look at this. God's discipline, and he says, Jesus is the mediator. He paid the price. He is the one that is going to keep us, to follow after us. So in this case, the escrow of our inheritance is the, the mediator of the New Testament and the redemption of transgression. Redemption, it's such a powerful, powerful thing. Redemption, uh, to redeem something, to buy back something. And we want to be able to look at that and just say, God, thank you, you're our redeemer. You've paid the price, you completed the work. And that is, that is the great news that he has completed the work. He is, he is the one that is right. All right, it is early, but with all this distraction, I'm going to go ahead and say prayer and close. So. Well, they at least are excited. Yeah, they're very excited. I'm glad about that. All right, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. We ask you to be with us and guide us. Help us to see what you'd have us to see. Help us to see how much you've done for us, how much you love for us, and help us to be excited about that. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.